0: Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
1: Support for this show comes from Nine West. Winter is finally coming to a close, but you might still fall the very ground beneath your feet with the hottest new trends from Nine West. Nothing beats the confidence the perfect little piece can give you, and their new collections of footwear, apparel, and accessories will let you take on the world in style. Use their Need It Now edit also known as the Nine Edit, to search effortlessly through trends like Western-style boots, loafers, and more. It's time to wear our confidence, ladies. We can't be contained. Because this spring at Nine West, we are infinite. Buy now and get 15% off with code PODCAST24.
2: From The Cut and Gimlet Media, this is The Cut on Tuesdays. I'm your host, Molly Fisher. Electronic communication has given us so many new ways to feel bad. Like, think about the last message you freaked out over. Probably it was something like, you canceled dinner plans and your friend wrote back and she said, okay, but with no exclamation point. And then you spent several hours wondering if this meant that she hated you now. But what if the messages you were getting sounded like this? It's really a shame that a man wasted sperm on
3: a lowlife cunt like you. Should have masturbated into the toilet. And I loved that one because I thought, I I just really, I really loved how it assumes that sperm is in really short supply. Oh God, yes, of (laughs) course. It could could be wasted. Don't waste the sperm. (laughs) The precious (laughs) sperm. (laughs) Um, I would love to attend one of your events. Please let me know when your funeral is on.
2: Earlier this year, I talked to the writer Clementine Ford at the All About Women Festival in Sydney. Clem's a leading voice on women's issues in Australia, and whenever she writes something new about feminism, she can count on responses like that. And they just keep coming. Just a heads up, the next one she's going to read is pretty graphic. And then
3: this is probably the worst one that I've ever received. It comes from an email address, clementinewillberaped at gmail.com. Misspelled my name, though, so... Thank you. I hope someone rapes you brutally with a baseball bat wrapped in barbed wire. Destroy your ugly cunt up some more. You deserve to be hung like a pig in a slaughterhouse and have your teeth and tongue ripped out so you can shut the fuck up, you man-hating feminist dog. And that's the first two lines of a 10-line email. Jesus. But this one was my favourite. Feminism is just an attempt by the ugly women to bring the hot women down to their level. (laughs) And you're about as ugly as it gets. Do you even get laid? I bet you go through a stack of batteries every week for your 12-inch vibrator, which probably doesn't even touch the sides of your gaping cunt. You know you're a piece of shit, don't you? I hope you
2: get the worst disease imaginable.
3: Fuck off and die.
2: In the messages Clem has collected, you can hear these guys fumbling around for the words that are going to destroy a woman. And sometimes what they come up with is genuinely terrifying. Other times, though, it's off. In a way that's almost funny and probably revealing. For example, a lot of the guys who write to Clem seem convinced that telling a woman her vagina is big will be the insult equivalent of telling a man his dick is small. Faced with this combination of horrific and absurd, it's hard to know exactly what to do. What do you take seriously and how seriously do you take it? When do you laugh? And when do you start thinking about installing a home security system? Should you report it? And if you wanted to report it, who would you report it to? One of the things that I do and one of the, the powerful things that I think
3: women can do is to, um, is to screenshot and display alongside the names of these men and hopefully alongside their faces the things that they are willing to say to you in private. Um, and they don't like that funnily enough. Um, and I always sort of say, well, you're always accusing me of censoring men but I'm actually just giving you a platform for, you know. <laughs> Anyway, so I would posted this photograph of this man who said to me, he'd responded to something, you know, I write a lot about men's violence against women and met with threats of violence because of that Um, and he'd said, you gibber less with a cock in your mouth. And I noticed that his Facebook photo had him pictured with his two small children because a lot of them, of course, have kids, you know, and, and I can never figure out if it's scarier that they're raising sons or daughters. And I posted a photo of him saying they always have kids. And this guy, Michael Nolan, responded to that just saying slut. And it just pissed me off because I thought for someone to come in and, and then like further perpetuate the sort of sense that you're under attack or that you're an object of ridicule and mockery by using these very sexualized terms and threats, I just thought fuck you, Michael <laughs> Nolan. Yeah. Um, and he'd had his, he'd, he had his, his employment place listed alongside his his Facebook page (laughs) so I just sent them an email and they responded really quickly and positively and he lost his job and he actually posted, someone posted on his page publicly, you know, is it true you lost your job and he was like, yeah, nah, whatever, big deal. But what was funnier was the response to it. So he lost his job, this 21-year-old guy, and all of a sudden, I was like the devil incarnate. So how dare you? How dare you ruin a man's life because you can't handle words on the internet. You know, by the way, the people who are least able to handle any form of words on the internet that are critical of them are white men aged between 15 and 75.
2: Yeah. Um. Then came the news coverage of this exchange with Michael Nolan. Soon more and more people who knew less and less about what had actually happened were all weighing in. And Clem watched as the narrative mutated in this bizarre way. Michael Nolan suddenly ceased being a
3: 21-year-old single man who worked as a you know a night manager for a service department. And he all of a sudden became literally, as people were describing it, a father and husband. And it was because this incident had happened, I think, in November or something, it was right before Christmas. Oh, God. <laughs> And so this poor family, I'd forced Cast out. I'd forced this poor family into homelessness. They were no longer, no longer <laughs> able to live. And Santa would not be visiting the children that year. And then this was suddenly became the truth in people's minds that I had deliberately gone out to destroy the life of a hardworking father and husband. And this
2: is what feminism does. Even though the Michael Nolan saga only attracted more haters, Clem still thinks there's value in bringing this stuff out in the open we can
3: stand there until we're blue in the face and try and try and impart to them or make them see women's humanity. But the very fact of us doing that just makes them laugh even more. Look at yes. her, look at her, she's so sincere, isn't it funny? Um, what they hate is being laughed at or mocked. And that to me has been the best response to men who use this kind of language and behavior, is to put them on blast in a way that makes them feel like it suddenly shifts the spotlight. They've put the spotlight on you trying to shame you and make you feel unsafe, but it's you
2: getting this mass power of people to shift the spotlight back onto you, and they hate it. Clem's strategy, basically, is only really appealing if you feel like there are people out there who've got your back, who will be on your side when you flip the script. But what if that doesn't happen? And what if the Internet platforms themselves, the institutions that make it all possible, aren't on your side? Then it's not a matter of humor and hand-to-hand combat. Then it's like you're taking on the Internet itself. Ijoma Oluo is a writer in Seattle. Her book, So You Want to Talk About Race, came out last year. I am a writer, speaker,
4: and Internet yeller on social issues in the United States.
2: A few summers back, Ijoma found herself going up against the Internet. It all started when she was on vacation with her family.
4: I was taking my kids on a road trip, and we were in the middle of Montana, and the only place that was open to eat was Cracker Barrel. I have never been to a Cracker Barrel before. We don't have them in Seattle. I
2: have never been to a Cracker Barrel, <laughs> also growing up on the West Coast. Like, yeah, what is it? <laughs>
4: yeah, it's you walk into Cracker Barrel, and it feels first you have to go through this gift shop that's like your racist grandma's you know, garage sale. A lot of sculptures made out of cotton buds and stuff like that, and you're like, oh, this is creepy. It's, like, just not my world, you know? And you go through all of that old-timey stuff, you know? And a lot of old-timey stuff just isn't that—doesn't bring up pleasant memories for Black people in this country. You walk into the restaurant, and they have this giant sign that basically says, like, if you're
2: discriminated against, please call this number. Cracker Barrel is a restaurant chain with a troubled history. They've been sued multiple times by the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission for Discrimination. In 1991, they made headlines after they fired gay workers for not demonstrating what they called normal heterosexual values. And in 2004, they were sued by the Justice Department for violating the Civil Rights Act. Among other things, the suit alleged that they segregated customer seating by race. Cracker Barrel settled for almost $9 million. And
4: then you go and sit, and we're in this restaurant, we're the only Black people here. It's the sea of cowboy hats, and... I was nervous, and I made a little tweet that just said, you know, like, I'm in a sea of cowboy hats. Are they going to let my black ass walk out of here? Yeah. That's it. That was the the entire tweet. I've written, you know, books and articles that are far more, I think, inflammatory to some people than that. But for some reason, this got picked up by, like, right-wing troll kings Mm -hmm. online. And I had no idea what was going on. I'm on my road trip. We're looking at historical sites, and my phone starts going off. And I'm getting threats. You know, I say, we're going to go to the Grand Canyon. And someone says, I hope someone pushes you off the Grand Canyon. You know, we're on the road. Someone says, I hope you get hit by a semi. Yeah, I hope your whole family dies. And I'm like, what is going on? Like, it was everywhere. My email was suddenly full. You know, (laughs) I was getting all these tweets, all these Facebook messages. And I asked someone to look and they were like, oh, it looks like this tweet. And by the end of the day, there were dozens of articles in right-wing media that were so weird because it was like racist black woman walks in the cracker barrel. You won't believe what happened next. <laughs> and like, like, also, nothing, nothing happened. happened. <laughs> I wrote a tweet. Yeah, <laughs> And <laughs> people were, I didn't know people, I didn't know white people wrote this hard for Cracker Barrel. Man, like, people were like, this is the most racist thing oh that I've ever seen. People were like, I read this tweet and I cried. I'm <laughs> <laughs> like, what are you talking about? It's not even, you know, the grits are watery, y'all. It's not even good food. And yeah. it got to the point where I couldn't even function online. And... I would report things on Twitter and they would actually be blocked or, you know, and taken down. But on Facebook, constantly I was getting, this doesn't violate our rules. This doesn't
2: violate our Mm -hmm. rules.
4: And so what I started doing was screenshotting what I was getting and saying, you know, this is what I'm getting and it apparently doesn't violate rules.
2: Well, yeah. What kinds of things were you getting? What were those messages like?
4: Um, They were literally things like, I hope you die. You know, it wasn't just, I don't like you. I think you're racist. It was people calling me names, people calling me the N-word, people putting up pictures of lynched bodies. Oh, my God. Photoshopped my face onto the body of Gorilla. And then Facebook suspended me for 30 days because me posting... (laughs) (laughs) The imagery I was getting was violating their rules.
2: Just to be clear, because this may well sound crazy, Facebook didn't suspend the people who were sending Ijoma photos of lynchings. But when Ijoma tried to call attention to those photos, they went ahead and suspended her.
4: It was literally screenshots of what was being posted on Facebook. It wasn't like I was coming up with it, Uh right? These were... Someone posted this on my page. You were not the it, original you know, source, yeah. No, and and the original source was still there. Those mm-hmm. were never taken down. Those were never deemed fi- in violation. And these were all things I had reported. That's crazy. And so I was at Disneyland. We had just pulled into Disneyland when this happened. <laughs> and I just started crying. And I think that was a moment where I really just couldn't handle it anymore. I was trying to keep a happy face for my kids. My mom was worried for our safety, you know. And then the, the platform itself that's supposed to stop these things ended up suspending me for 30 days. And,
2: I, you know, there wasn't really anything else to do at that point. I really felt powerless. What Ijeoma was going through was actually something that's happened before. People like Black Lives Matter activists have gotten banned from Facebook after sharing examples of the hate mail they receive. They're told they've violated community standards. Ijoma was lucky. She was someone who already had an online following. So when she spoke out about what Facebook had done, they unsuspended her and told her it had been a mistake. I'm one of the few Black people who actually got an apology for this. This happens all the time. And I'm one of the few people who actually got a we messed up or sorry. For Ijoma, the Cracker Barrel incident was what an exceptionally bad day online looks like. When it comes to dealing with normal run-of-the-mill bad days, she's found some tools that help her stay sane.
4: I love mute because they don't know they've been muted. Yeah. And they're just yelling and yelling and yelling. And, and they're not, they don't exist anymore. I'm sure there are people who've been yelling in my feed, in my mentions for years.
2: And I have no idea. She's also a champion blocker. A few years ago, after a bad day on Twitter, she discovered a plugin called blockchain.
4: It's the one really effective tool I have on Twitter. It's a really glitchy tool, but it's all I've got. And it's a Chrome plugin. And basically, the moment I see someone tagging this kind of, you know, ultra right wing, you know, edgelord on <laughs> Twitter, I run this algorithm and what it does is it goes through their follower list and blocks all of their followers. It is honestly probably the only reason why I'm still in line. It got me through Gamergate. It got me through R. Kelly. It got me through Cracker Barrel. Like, it's gotten me through.
2: All the great battles of (laughs) recent years. Yes.
4: (laughs) You know, I estimated a a couple years ago that I was at about 300,000 blocks. And I'm, I'm probably at a million, if not more.
2: Oh, my God. At this point. Even with a million blocks, there's still plenty of threats and insults that get through to her. It's not just Twitter, after all. There's also Facebook and Instagram and regular old email. And when she zooms out and looks at all the rhetoric that comes her way, Ijoma sees a pattern.
4: I think if there's one thing that you can definitely see in the types of phrasing and in the feedback, what white men are desperately afraid of is a direct reflection of what they have done to others. The messages I get are you don't want equality. You want to make it so that you're the master and we're the slaves. You want to make it so that you get all the jobs and we get none of the jobs. You you want to make it so that men are afraid of women instead of women being afraid of men, you know. And it's this and you what you see in it is this mirror they're looking into that says this is what you owe. Mm. This is what the reckoning would look like if there was a
2: just world. If we gave as good as we got, you would be in real trouble. That's a pretty sharp analysis of what's going on here, I think. In the onslaught of hateful messages, you're getting a glimpse of what these guys fear. For the men writing to Clementine Ford, it was all about sexual inadequacy. For the ones writing to Ijoma, it's the possibility of a real reckoning with historical injustice. But just because you can see what's happening doesn't make it easy to deal with. Ijoma is basically cobbling together a solution out of glitchy browser plug-ins and the mute button. And she's had to do that because tech companies themselves haven't come up with a good way to handle harassment. So what would it mean to look for a bigger solution? Maybe Twitter and Facebook aren't much help, but what about the law? That's coming up after the break.
0: Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Support for this show
1: comes from Nine West Because this spring at Nine West, we are infinite. Buy now and get 15% off with code PODCAST24.
2: Welcome back to the Cut on Tuesdays. This week, we're talking about the harassment that often greets women online. And our next story is about a woman who's actually not even very online.
5: I didn't have Facebook. I had Instagram that I barely used. I, you know, use email for work-related stuff or, you know, like, personal related to my family. But other than that, I don't have, like, an online persona, and I didn't.
2: This is Francesca, and even though she is a millennial, she's not someone who lives in a world of Twitter mentions and Instagram DMs. So, for example, if an ex wanted to contact her, it would probably be kind of a hassle. But a few years back, Francesca noticed she was hearing from exes a lot.
5: Like once every other month in 2015, I would get an email from an ex and it would just be something pretty random. One time, a current girlfriend of my ex sent me a naked picture of myself.
2: It was just bizarre. Like, who is this person? How does this person have this picture of me? And why are they emailing me? What is going on here? But after a while... The weird messages started popping up all over the place, not just in her email.
5: I started getting messages um, on my work phone from a guy I'd gone on
2: a few dates with. They'd gone on one or two dates over a year ago. Francesca's a social worker, and she's very careful about who she shares her employment information with. Her work number was unlisted, and she knew she wouldn't have given it to this relative stranger. And now he's somehow gotten access to my
5: work cell phone number, and he's was sending me messages that were like, I'm walking by your house. And so I was really scared for my safety because I thought that there was a stranger out there, essentially, who was trying to come after me.
2: She wasn't sure how to react. The messages were weird. She'd talk about them with her friends and her boyfriend, but they didn't seem like anything she could do much about. And one ex-boyfriend had done something really strange.
5: He had taken a near-nude picture of me and put it as his Facebook profile picture.
2: Francesca doesn't have Facebook, so he'd sent a friend request to her best friend instead.
5: And so my best friend contacted me, and she's like, oh my gosh, this person just friend requested me, and it's a naked picture of you. And we were like, what is happening here? Like, this doesn't make any sense.
2: When the Facebook thing happened, Francesca decided it was time to see a lawyer, to see if she could get the profile taken down. She'd heard about a lawyer who specialized in revenge porn cases.
5: And I looked her up, and I was like, oh, my gosh, like, she really is the only one. This is back in 2016 now. I was like, she's the only one, like, in the United States that's, like, doing this and pushing for legislation about revenge porn and, and privacy and looking at victims' rights in this way. And so I contacted her, like, immediately.
6: So we basically fight assholes, psychos, stalkers, and pervs and represent people who are under attack by them. This
2: is Carrie Goldberg. She started her own firm a few years ago to specialize in a new area that she didn't see anyone else handling effectively.
6: I hate the words like cybercrime, cyber harassment, online harassment. Like, I hate those words because I think they're really minimizing. Mm-hmm. And people just kind of think, well, oh, she was called a bitch, like on Twitter, like get over it. They think that it doesn't
2: impact you. Carrie's an expert in this stuff. After she had her own experience with an abusive ex, she realized what limited legal tools there were to fight harassers who used the internet as a weapon. Since then, her law firm has taken on institutions like school districts and tech companies for failing to protect victims. And she's consulted on revenge porn legislation in nearly a dozen states. She helped draft New York's bill, which the governor just signed into law this month. So Francesca had come to the right place. Francesca came to my office and
6: she was very well-informed and, you know, had read up on revenge porn and knew the lingo, and she told me that this guy that she'd casually dated a couple years ago, who she didn't even remember sending pictures to, he'd created a profile on Facebook in his own name with pictures
2: of her. And so she wanted, she wanted justice. Francesca explained to Carrie who this guy was and how they'd broken up, and Carrie's immediate reaction was, this doesn't sound right. I said, no, <laughs> like, it's not
6: It's not him. Um, what made you say
2: that? Because it didn't fit the pattern. Carrie had worked on dozens of her French porn cases by the time she met Francesca. And the offenders she dealt with were pretty predictable. Her office basically had a checklist for this kind of thing. This was not
6: somebody that she had had a messy breakup with. It wasn't recent. Um... She hadn't been in the media, which maybe could have provoked an offender to to do something. Like, very rarely is there such a time span between mm-hmm. a breakup and and this. And also, like, he's somebody who he kind of had a, had his act together. He was going to school. You know, we did a background search on him. He, you know, was making car payments regularly. Like, and he didn't fit the profile. And so, you know, I didn't want to send him a cease and desist letter or deal with order protection because I was really
2: sure that... This guy wasn't the perpetrator. Carrie told Francesca that they could get the Facebook profile taken down pretty easily, but that she felt confident the ex whose name was on the profile wasn't the guy who'd made it. She told Francesca to get in touch if anything else happened. And it was shortly after that meeting that Francesca's inbox blew up.
5: I started to almost like every other day get emails from exes. It was like six other people came out of the woodwork. Things got very scary in my brain because I didn't understand what was happening. What did I do to deserve this? There must be something wrong with me if I have dated men who want to abuse me and come after me. I felt very alone. I couldn't make sense of anything happening. I really started to feel um, that I was kind of losing my mind at different times. And then,
2: a few months after the Facebook incident,
5: Francesca found out she was being sued. July, July 6th of 2016, I was at home cooking dinner, and I got an email, and
2: I opened it up, and it was a lawsuit. The lawsuit had been filed by the current wife of someone Francesca once dated. It said that Francesca had given her piece to this woman's husband, who had then given it to her, and now she was suing them both. I mean, I almost
5: fainted. My brain just, like, couldn't even compute.
2: Francesca forwarded the lawsuit to Carrie immediately.
6: Again, this lawsuit doesn't actually look like it's from the woman who... You know, it's, it says it's from, you know, this is the most poorly drafted lawsuit I've ever seen. Um, I called the lawyer whose name was up there and she was like, these aren't my clients, never heard of this case.
0: So uh, it was bogus. So
6: it was totally bogus. Plus you, you don't serve lawsuits by email. I had my associate, Adam, check out the PDF lawsuit. And I said, see if you can go into the back end and get any information about who last edited it. A couple hours prior to Francesca receiving it, it showed that it had last been edited by somebody named Juan Thompson. The name didn't mean
5: anything to them, so they started digging. The next day I go to work, and I'm at work, and Carrie's office, they called me. They called me on my cell phone, and they were like, call me on a landline right now. And I was like, okay, that's weird. So I called them on a landline, and I spoke to Adam, uh, Carrie's associate lawyer, and he was like, you have to come into the office, don't tell anyone where you're coming, come in right now. And I was like pleading with him. I was like, you have to tell me what this is. Like if I have to leave work right now, I have to know why I'm leaving work. He's like, I can't tell you anything. You just have to come in here. Don't tell anyone where you're going. Don't talk on your cell phone. Don't text on your cell phone. And I was petrified. I'll never forget this moment because I walked into the office and I walked into the conference room before they said anything. I saw pictures of Juan all spread along the table. They asked me, they are like, do you know Juan Thompson? And I was like, yeah, it's my current boyfriend. And then they were like, we were able to find out who edited the document and it was Juan Thompson. And he edited the document like 10 minutes before he sent it to you. I really felt like my insides just like poured out. My brain fell on the ground. It was so unreal to see the pictures of him. It was like, darts coming at me like okay well then he did this then he did this then he did this okay so that means that he's been responsible for putting the revenge porn up okay that means that he's been actually going after you as like 20 different exes this whole time like it still like was one of the most terrifying days of my life like I couldn't the person that you've been in love with for you know we'd been dating now for like 18 months
1: Mm -hmm.
5: The, the person that you're in love with is actually has been responsible for abusing you for almost the entirety of your relationship And not know it?
2: Francesca had met Juan on OKCupid in winter of 2014. She'd been hesitant about online dating. Anyone could pretend to be anyone online, she figured. But she and Juan had clicked right away.
5: I thought he was my dream guy. He talked political, he talked about social justice, um, he was very passionate, and that's something I've always looked for, is a partner who's passionate about issues, and so he could do that with me. And I was like, ah, oh, this guy is great, he was a journalist for The Intercept, like he's a good writer, he cares about what he does, he cares about the world, um, and that really hooked me.
2: Her friends were impressed, too.
5: They all liked him. He charmed everyone. Yeah. And my mom doesn't like any men I usually ever date, and she liked him.
2: Juan and Francesca had a lot in common. He cared about
5: the work that I did and would talk to me about it, which was something that I had always wanted to have in a partner. Mm-hmm. I know now that he had actually been reading my diaries, reading through my emails, reading through my phone as far back as, like, just a couple months into when we were dating. He did that so he could be the person that he knew I wanted him to be mm-hmm. because he was able to read, like, my inner monologue about how I felt about men and how I felt about dating. And so he was able to construct himself into an archetype of the person that I wanted.
2: They moved in together about a year after they first started dating. Juan had been let go from his job at The Intercept, and it made sense financially. And it was shortly after he moved in that the weird messages had started to escalate. Francesca still isn't totally sure when or how Juan was able to access her phone and computer. She says she never gave him her passwords or login information, They were just living their lives together in intimate proximity.
5: I did what a lot of us are guilty of doing, which is like in front of people, we just type in our our passwords. He probably just was able to memorize what I had done. And my password to my phone and my password to my email just by glancing at me because I'm not—as I'm typing, I'm not hiding what I'm doing. You know, you don't think, oh, the person next to me is memorizing my password.
2: With those passwords, Juan was able to reconstruct years of Francesca's dating history. He could read her texts, emails, and chats. He had contact information, phone numbers, and email addresses. And so he was able to impersonate people, changing one or two letters in an email address so that on first glance, it looked right. That Facebook profile wouldn't have been hard to set up once he knew the ex-boyfriend's name. He knew enough details to make it all seem real. When those exes had started popping up again, Francesca had sometimes had a hard time explaining what was happening to her friends and family. But there was one person who was always eager to discuss what was going on. I was terrified. I was like, can you believe this? And he's like,
5: you know, trying to be so supportive, like, wants to talk about it with me. Like, what can I do to help you? Um, Like, this guy is horrible. I can't believe you dated someone like this that would do this to you. Like, your taste in men used to be horrible. Like, thank goodness you're with me
2: now, you know, and I'm just like, oh, you're right. Sitting in Carrie's office, surrounded by photos of Juan, Francesca was finally able to start putting together the pieces of everything that had happened in the last year and a half.
5: It's weird because it was comforting to know that it was—I was like, okay, well, I wasn't losing my mind. <laughs> Someone was making me lose my mind. Like, not all these men were after me. It was just one man. But how could I have missed the signs? I'm a, I'm a social worker. I'm a clinician. I was like, how did I not know it was him? It turns
2: out that Juan had been fooling a lot of people. When he got fired from The Intercept months before, it was for faking quotes and fabricating sources. He'd also been impersonating his editor over a fake email account. Of course, he hadn't told Francesca that part of the story. Anyway, now Francesca was sitting there in Carrie's office, trying to digest all this. And Juan was still her boyfriend. He was still living in her apartment. I was unraveling in terms of, like,
5: my heart, but my brain was very clear. This person is very dangerous. I need to break up with him. I didn't go back to my apartment. I called him. And I was like, things aren't working out. Um, We need to break up and I need for you to move out of the apartment because it was my apartment. And he was like, okay. And that was it. Like, I went home with my best friend and I was so scared that I slept at the the edge of her bed, like in her room. Because I was like, I can't even sleep on the couch because I was so worried he was going to come over there. I
6: knew that we were going to be entering her into a really difficult situation because somebody that is motivated to stalk and harass their current girlfriend or wife, which we see quite frequently, and fuck with them and gaslight them. Somebody who's got that inclination is a real sicko. So I knew that, like, he was going to retaliate.
2: And then basically, that's when things exploded. While she was still with Juan, the havoc he was wreaking was mostly private. He was harassing her within the confines of her own inbox, her own phone. But after they broke up, his focus shifted outward. Now his big tactic was to turn other people against her. The day after Francesca broke up with Juan, her boss got an email. At the time, she was working at a residential facility for the formerly homeless. He
5: contacted the executive director of my nonprofit, pretending to be a journalist for ABC, and said that he had um, discovered that I had been selling drugs to my clients, getting arrested for drunk driving. He also sent emails
2: to her coworkers, her boss's bosses, and the state licensing board. He told them that she'd done things like sleep with her clients and otherwise abuse her position. Juan wasn't just trying to make her privately miserable. Now he was trying to ruin her life publicly. Francesca went to the police and told them what was happening.
5: My ex-boyfriend has been abusing me. He has been stalking me as other people. And they were like, what? What do you mean? I'm like, yeah, and he's been going after me on the internet. He been, has been writing these things about me. He went after my job. He's impersonating people. And the cops were just like, okay. I'm like, it's harassment. Like, let me spell it out for you. I, I've been getting harassed by my ex-boyfriend. This is a domestic violence issue. He's stalking me, and he's pre- stalking me, and he's pretending to be other people. And they were so callous. The first time I went, I mean, it just got worse every single time. I, I mean, I went to law enforcement for help 20 times, probably more, but 20 that I can count. And they just didn't
2: <laughs> get it. They just didn't get it. At this point, Juan had already broken the law. All the things he was doing to Francesca qualified as stalking and harassment. But just because something's against the law doesn't mean the police are good at dealing with it. The officers Francesca was talking to at her local precinct didn't seem to know what to do about the behavior she was describing, and they didn't seem to particularly care. It comes back to what Carrie was saying about how she hates terms like cybercrime. It's language that lets people like those police officers brush off experiences like Francesca's.
5: It doesn't matter if when you report it, if the police don't understand it. Yeah. And so they don't know how to screen for it. They don't know how to deal with it.
2: Francesca kept waiting for the police to do something. And Finally, they did, but not the thing she was hoping for.
5: I was at work, and I got a call from a sergeant of the intelligence division telling me that he needed to see me right away. And they were like, so we received an email from you stating that you were going to um, blow up the 77th precinct. And I'm like, it's Juan Thompson. It's Juan Thompson. It's not me.
2: Next, she got a frantic call from the police department Someone had emailed a local radio station with a death threat against Francesca and the NYPD chief of police.
5: And I kept telling the cops every time they would show up for something, I'm like, it's Juan Thompson.
2: The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children got a tip that Francesca had child pornography on her phone. It's Juan Thompson. Cops showed up at her front door. They'd gotten word that Francesca had an arsenal of guns and was selling firearms out of her apartment. Juan
5: Thompson, Juan Thompson, Juan Thompson, Juan Thompson. Remember that name. Remember that name. When you find my body, that's, that's going to be the person. It's Juan Thompson.
6: I was scared because it was escalating so, so fast. And he was so hellbent, and he was so elusive. Mm-hmm. He was slippery, and we didn't know where he was. So it was like these, these drone
5: attacks. The only thing I was doing was tracking Juan's next move. That's what my days were.
2: Think of the little tug of anxiety that comes with having a phone, the constant feeling that something might be happening that you'll need to deal with, the beat of suspense as you wait to see what notifications will appear. Most of us don't have any real reason to think that something bad is coming our way. But Francesca did. And for months, every time she picked up her phone, she was already starting to panic about what Juan had done now. And then, about a year after Francesca first started getting those messages from exes, she got a knock on her door.
5: So the FBI showed up and told me that I had been implicated in bomb threats.
2: This was February 2017. Trump had just been inaugurated. Everyone was paying close attention to a possible spike in hate crimes. Bomb threats were called into almost a dozen community centers in New York, Chicago, and other locations yesterday. Since the beginning of the year, there have been nearly 70 bomb threats directed at JCCs across the U.S. and Canada. It had been seven months since Francesca found out her boyfriend was the one harassing her online. Since then, she and Kerry had been carefully recording everything he'd done. When the FBI showed up on her doorstep, Francesca just gave them her Juan Thompson file. I handed it to them, like, really
5: aggressively, and I was
2: like, this is everything you ever need to know
5: about anything that he's done. Like, this will lead you to him. And then they arrested him three days later.
2: Juan had sent bomb threats to Jewish community centers and used Francesca's name. He'd latched onto something that was scaring people across the country. And by doing that, he managed to bring the full force of federal law enforcement to her doorstep. Francesca had been fighting for months to get people to pay attention. Now they finally were. Her
6: case was in the system. You know, it couldn't have been more in the system. She had an order of protection that she couldn't serve. She'd gone to the local police, and yet she couldn't get relief. You know, it shouldn't have had to escalate to that. We knew months before that he had broken laws, and we knew months before that he was escalating.
5: If I'd reported to the cops, my ex is threatening me with a knife or he has a gun, he's threatening to, you know, to hurt me and he actually has a physical gun, they would have reacted very differently than if when I reported to them, hey, now he's threatening to kill me and he's writing it online. I told you that this guy was dangerous. I told you that he was going to escalate. I told you he was going to go after other people. Like, I knew it wasn't going to stop. I fucking told you so.
2: It's hard to know why exactly Juan did what he did. One thing's for sure, though, he was good at it. The exact thing Francesca had liked most about Juan was the thing that made his attacks so powerful. He was attuned to the state of the world. He knew what was going on and how it made people feel. He recognized the most combustible anxieties about anti-Semitism, gun violence, pedophilia, and he turned them back on the woman he wanted to harm so that she became the villain rather than the victim. It wasn't so different from what happened when Ijoma tried to call out abuse on Facebook Somehow she became the bad guy. The system came after her. Juan was ultimately sentenced to five years in federal prison. He's appealing the sentence, though. And no matter what, sooner or later, he'll be back online. That's it for this week's show. We'll see you next Tuesday. Bye! You can read more about Francesca and Carrie Goldberg's other clients and Carrie's new book. It's called Nobody's Victim, Fighting Psychos, Stalkers, Pervs, and Trolls, and it's out next month. The Cut on Tuesdays is produced by Sarah McVie and Olivia Natt. Our senior producer is Kimmy Reckler. We're edited by Stella Bugby and Lynn Levy. Mixing is by Emma Munger. Our music is by Emma Munger, Haley Shaw, and Peter Leonard. Our theme song is Play It Right by Sylvan Esso. Special thanks to Edwina Throsby, Narrator Ross, Laura Mitchell, Peter Bresnan, Laura Newcomb, Suzanne Williams, and Nicole Galteland. The Cut on Tuesdays is a production of Gimlet Media and The Cut.
1: Support for this show comes from Nine West. Winter's finally coming to a close, but you might still fall the very ground beneath your feet with the hottest new trends from Nine West. Nothing beats the confidence the perfect little piece can give you—